Good morning, everyone. For those here, those online, glad you chose to worship with us this morning. We've done some fantastic things as a family this morning, haven't we? And as a family, we celebrate these events. We celebrate births. We celebrate deaths at times. We stand and we support because we are a community of believers. We are a we, right? We live in community. We're not intended to live separately. We are intended by God, created by God, to live in partnership with other humans. And so these things are not just side issues for us, but these are the very fabric of who we are as Christians. We are a we. This morning, we're going to kind of wrap up and, and put a bow on our study in the Gospel of Mark. If you've been with us from the beginning of the year, you know we've been working through in survey fashion the Gospel of Mark, which, as pastors reminded us, is a gospel about discipleship, but it's a gospel that's centered upon the person of Jesus Christ. And particularly, this morning, I want to look at Jesus as the servant giver. As I was reviewing and kind of thinking through the gospel, I listened to the whole thing multiple times just in my, my earbuds, and I was reading it multiple times, and I kept coming upon these uh, repeated references of Jesus as the Son. And it's interesting as you go through a study of these things because it highlights him in different features. Anytime we look at a gospel, anytime we look at the word together, anytime we come and gather together as a, uh, a body, we need to remember that we are here to focus on Jesus and we're to recalibrate ourselves. You maybe heard me say this before. If you're in generations, you've definitely heard me say it before, that church for me is a recalibration of my mind and my spirit, that the week throws me off course. But Sunday is the time that I can bring everything back to focus and I can reconcile everything else around my life, life on this one thing, this one person, and it's Jesus. Amen. And as I do that, I then become more like him in my thinking, my acting, my living, my walking, my talking, all those other things I do during the week. And to collectively, I ask us to recalibrate ourselves this morning because the things that Jesus does, we ought to do. The things that Jesus teaches, we ought to speak about. The things that Jesus instructs us and challenges us on are things that we ought to do in our own personal lives. This is not a game we are playing as Christians. We are followers of Jesus Christ. And his life ought to influence the way that we make decisions on a day-to-day -day basis. So as we look at the Gospel of Mark this morning, and particularly Jesus as the servant giver, we're going to look at three main parts of Jesus' life. We're going to look at the names that were given to him through the Gospel. It goes back to what I mentioned a second ago, these names, the son of. We'll come back to that just momentarily. We're going to look at the position that was promised to Jesus, particularly the promise wrapped up in one of those names. But then we're going to look at the posture that he ended up taking for himself while he was on earth. And these three things will end up with a, a challenge for all of us that hopefully many of you will take upon yourself. So let's first look at the names that were given to Christ through the Gospel of Mark in particular. Now the Bible is full. Some scholars say there's over 150 names of Jesus. You know many of them. You're familiar with many of them. We've sung about many of them this morning. But of all of these plethora of names, including more names than we're going to talk about this morning, there's a series of names that are particularly including the word son. Now, son of God is one that we oftentimes go back to when talking about Jesus particularly. In the Gospel of Mark, it's used two times. It's used at the very first line, and it's used almost in the last line. 
And in Bible instruction, Bible interpretation, we call this inclusio. It's like, a book, it's like bookends to a story. If we're talking about the Son of God at the beginning and we're talking about the Son of God at the end, most likely we're going to be talking about the Son of God throughout the whole book. But we start in, in verse 1, chapter 1, and it says, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. At the very end of the gospel, chapter 15, it's a centurion standing at the foot of the cross, looking up those moments that we, we recognized just a couple weeks ago, looks up at the cross, watches how Jesus is dying, and the centurion says, surely this is the Son of God. Son of God is only used twice in the gospel of Mark. The next title we see of, of Jesus is Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. And if you look at that list, it's interesting because Jesus, Son of the Most High God, is probably the most grand of all of the names. It's the one that kind of captures the most sense of reverence. It's Jesus, the Son of, not just God, but the Most High God. What's even more interesting to me about this title particularly is it's used two times in the gospel also, and the only time it's used, it's used out of the mouth of a demon. The demon calls Jesus the Son of the Most High God just before he's exercised twice. Very, very interesting. Jesus, Son of the Most High God. It reminds us about the greatness of the, the, the lineage of this one that would be our Messiah. The third name that we see in the Gospel of Mark is Jesus, Son of David. It's also used twice. And it's used by a guy named Blind Bartimaeus. I feel badly for Bartimaeus because he's not blind anymore, yet we still call him that. We're like constantly referring to him as what he used to be before Jesus met him. But just weeks before Jesus is entering the city, maybe even days before he enters the city for the last time, he happens upon Bartimaeus, who is blind down by the streets of Jericho. And Bartimaeus yells out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He says it twice. And the Lord Jesus does have mercy on him and does extend himself and does heal him. And Bartimaeus stands up no longer blind and follows Jesus into the city. It's a great story. Jesus, son of David. The religious leaders were particular people, very interesting. They use a title of Jesus as Jesus, the son of the blessed. Maybe they don't want to reference Jesus too closely to God. Maybe they don't want to use the word God at all. But this phrase, Jesus, son of the blessed, comes out of the mouth of the high priest. And it's one of the last questions that the high priest asks of Jesus before they begin beating him to death. And they, they ask, are you, Jesus, the son of uh, the blessed? And Jesus says, I am. And then he references himself as the son of man, which is the last name and the name I want to focus most on this morning as we're together. Jesus uses this, re this phrase, son of man, which looking at the list is probably the most uh, weak of the list. It's the most insignificant of the list. You would want your name to be attached to God himself or the most high God or King David or the blessed one, but Jesus refers to himself as son of man 14 times. And what's interesting to me about that is as I'm listening to or reading through the, the gospel, every time son of man is used, it's used at the mouth, from the mouth of Jesus. And every time Jesus uses this title, Son of Man, it's a reference to himself. And I thought, that's very, very interesting. Why is it that Jesus calls himself Son of Man? He doesn't call himself anything else. So I started ripping through the Bible looking for other uses of Son of Man. It's not used a lot of times in Scripture. The, the time it's used most significantly is in the life of Ezekiel the prophet, not a prophet that we oftentimes read about, but 92 times Ezekiel is called Son of Man. I thought to myself, this, 
Is Jesus comparing? Is he equating himself? Is he tying himself somehow into the ministry of Ezekiel? And I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but it's significant that Jesus 14 times, Ezekiel 92 times. All that's very, very interesting. But we really see the, the reason for this Son of Man title and the significance of the Son of Man title by looking at that last interaction again between Jesus and the religious leaders. They say, are you Jesus, the son of the blessed? Jesus says, I am. And you will see the son of man coming with the clouds. It's a, a direct quote out of the book of Daniel and Daniel in chapter seven. And that's where we're gonna go this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open up with me to Daniel chapter seven. Jesus quotes from Daniel at this moment in time because he knows what significant son of man holds in history. He knows the, the title son of man is very significant in God's redemptive story, and Jesus refers to himself because he knows exactly why he has come. He knows the purpose for which he came, and he knows he's about to die. What's most significant in this interaction is that as soon as Jesus quotes from Daniel chapter 7, the high priest goes ballistic. He rips his clothes. He begins yelling. He commands the, the guards to begin striking and punching Jesus. And it's this reference to Daniel chapter 7, the son of man, that causes all of this stir to finally erupt in the hearts and the minds of the, uh, the religious leader. So look, let's look together at Daniel chapter 7. We're going to start up in uh, verse 9. Daniel was written 500 years before the birth of Christ, roughly. Daniel is prophesying in this passage of Scripture in the, in the reign of Belshazzar, which is, I know, one of your classic Israel favorites, right? Belshazzar, not even Israel, Jewish king, Babylonian king. And he's, we, we know Belshazzar only because of the phrase, you see the handwriting on the wall. Belshazzar was the one that saw the handwriting on the wall, and that night he died. And he's replaced by Darius, who became a great and influential king in the story of the Israelites. He was the one that was instrumental in bringing the people back into the promised land to rebuild Jerusalem. That was just a freebie, total tangent. It has nothing to do with what we're talking about this morning. But Daniel prophesied during the time of Belshazzar. In verse 9, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Interesting reference maybe to Ezekiel. A stream of fire issued and came out, of, out from before him, and a thousand thousands served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. It's the first half of Daniel's vision. Who is he seeing? Anybody know? He's seeing God. The Ancient of Days is God. It's the power and the awesomeness and the mind-blowing incredibility of God in his, in his glory and his beauty and his wonder and his wisdom, particularly couched in the relationship of judge. He is on his throne. He is surrounded by thrones. He is surrounded by everything that you and I would run from, fire, flames, bright light, and God in his glory is envisioned, sitting, preparing for judgment. Jump down to verse 13. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. 
And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So we see these names of Christ referencing particularly the Son of Man, which is drawn directly out of Daniel chapter 7. And in chapter 7, we see the reason for it, and it's a position that is promised to the Son of Man. And what does the, the, the position that the Son, of, the Son has promised include? He is there presented before the Lord God as the Son of Man, and he is given what? Dominion, glory, kingdom, peoples that will serve him. And this kingdom that he has given is an everlasting dominion. What's interesting to me is that Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the Son of Man, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus who had lived his whole life, and he's now at the verge of dying, is holding on to a promise that he will receive dominion and glory and power and people and a kingdom that is everlasting, but yet he is facing death. Such an interesting contradiction, such, such an interesting contrast. Jesus is committed to following the Father's will, knowing that what is promised to him is greatness, but what he is facing is brokenness. And he chooses bro brokenness for you and for me. Now, the end of the story, as we'll see here in a few minutes, is glory and dominion and power and awesomeness. But for the time being, Jesus, the Son of Man, is met with, with trial and difficulty and hardship. So we see the names given to the Son of God. We see this position promised to the Son of God. And I think it's a position that the Jewish leaders knew very well because as soon as Jesus begins quoting from Daniel chapter 7, they get angry because they realize that this passage is talking about God and God's giving his dominion to a ruler, the Messiah, who would be the ultimate king. Jesus is now claiming that for himself. And he is taking something much, much less than what's recorded for us in Daniel chapter 7. So let's look for a couple of minutes at the posture that is taken by Jesus. And for this, we're going to look back to the Gospel of Mark. Some of you thought we were never going to get there, I know. Mark chapter 10. This is one of the 14 uses of Son of Man by Jesus. Just a little bit about the context of the passage. It's just weeks before Jesus is going to be killed. He had already determined with, his, with the Father that he was on his way to Jerusalem to die. He has already told the disciples twice that he is going to Jerusalem to suffer, that he's going to be betrayed, that he's going to be beaten, that he's going to be crucified, that he's going to die, that he's going to be buried, and that three days later he's going to rise. And as the disciples are following him down the road, we come upon this situation, picking up in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus walking, was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise." And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. 
And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at the right hand and one at your left hand at glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. I just, I laugh at them. I just, yeah, we can do it. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant. Why? The Son of Man is presented to the Ancient of Days, right? It's the Ancient of Days who chooses where people are sitting. But it is for, you, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Began's a funny word. We're going to come back to that second. And Jesus called them to him and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of Gentiles lord it over, the, over them, excuse me, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be the first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Jesus' mind was, I don't know if it was a memory, if Jesus could remember this from pre-recorded time or if he knew the vision, but in his mind he knew what his position would be. His position would be ruler, reigner, kingdom, glory, honor, peoples forever. For even the Son of Man came not to get that, but rather he came to serve and to give his life. I love this picture of Jesus as the servant giver. The question is absolutely absurd. The question they start with is, Jesus, do whatever I ask of you to do, please. We're going to ask you a question, Jesus. We want you to pre-answer, yes, I will answer any question you have. It's funny, when Matthew is recording this situation, he describes it as James and John's mommy comes and says, hey, can you sit my sons at your right and your left? Mark leaves that out here. This is not the first time this question has been asked. Just in the previous chapter, Jesus makes known to the disciples that he is on his way to Jerusalem to be betrayed and killed and buried and raised again third day. And as he's coming down, he asks the disciples, what were you talking about on the way? Guess what they were talking about? They were arguing over which one of them would be the greatest. This was, this, this, they began to be indignant. It's not really accurate because they were already indignant. They were ticked that James and John had already gotten to Jesus first. Jesus, we want to be the best. We want to be the greatest. When your kingdom comes and you're sitting on your throne and there's thrones around you, we want to be on the right. We want to be on the left. Jesus is very clear with them. This is not my job. You will be baptized. Interesting, the two men, James and John. James was the first to die. John was the last to die. So James and John, they got what they wanted to. In some sense, they were the first and last martyrs of the disciples, of the apostles. But Jesus says, this is not for you. This life of self-glory, self-praise, self-centeredness is not the life that you live. The Gentiles live that way. 
In the Gentile world, the world, those that are out there, those that aren't in relationship with me, they do this. The powerful get higher and higher and higher, and they lord it over the lower and lower and lower. And if you can get a better position, then you can control the people below you. But this will not be among you. He's talking to you. He's talking to me. He's talking about the life that we live. The life that we live is not to be a life that is clamoring for power and position and prestige. It is not a life that is uh, building ever increasingly to us being the center of the universe. You wouldn't know that by watching TV or listening to ads or being on social media. But the world is not about us. It's not centered around who we are. I, I'm surprised by this passage because if anybody in history could have said, it's all about me, who would it be? It would be the Son of Man. Why? Because when God is envisioned on this throne and the Son of Man is presented to him, the, the Ancient of Days did not push him away. He does not say, no, I, I want another. He takes him and he seats him in honor and he gives him glory and power and, and kingdoms and peoples. But if anybody could have, it could have been Jesus. Jesus could have come and could have lived his life saying, it's all about me. But what did Jesus do? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's, what an example. What an example. Jesus came not to be served. He lived his life not self-centered, but constantly looking out from himself. Constantly looking out to those who are around him. Ultimately, looking to the Father's glory. Because ultimately, at the very end of the game, it's not Jesus who will be honored. It's the Father who will be honored. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, it's very clear there. All things will be made subjection to Christ, the Son. And he will defeat all things, including death itself. But at the end of days, he will gather all of creation. And he will present it back up to the Father as an offering to him. So that everywhere, God the Father is honored and glorified. Christ lived this life for the Father's glory, not for his own glory, even though he had been promised that position. Even though fully entitled, Jesus chose otherwise. He chose to serve. He chose to give. He chose, Paul writes later, to empty himself and take on the form of a bondservant. You know that passage? We're going to turn there. Philippians chapter 2. It's worth looking at. So if you, if you have not memorized Mark chapter 10, verse 45, you should. And if you've not memorized Daniel chapter 7, you should. And if you have not memorized Philippians chapter 2, you should. I'm not trying to guilt you. It's a strong exhortation in the Lord. Philippians chapter 2. 
chapter, uh, starting in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only at his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is, it, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, speaking about Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in the form, uh, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what we celebrated over the last handful of weeks. Jesus, Son of Man, presented before the Ancient of Days, promised kingdom, glory, power, honor, people forever. He submits himself willingly, taking on the form of a humble man, and he lives his life so that he might die. Continue in Philippians. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and he has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Daniel chapter 7 is fulfilled. But it was fulfilled through Jesus' suffering, first, being glorified, second, you and I reaping the full benefit of his reign, third. Jesus, the Son of Man willingly chose to not be served, to live as a servant instead, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, we could talk about ransom, but that would be a full sermon in itself. Even though he deserved otherwise, even though he was promised otherwise, Jesus lived to serve, and he lived to give. Jesus is a model of service and generosity. All of this is well and good, and we could leave saying, wow, Jesus was quite a man, but Jesus didn't live just so we could say he's quite a man. Jesus lives so that you can be like him. He lives so that you can be reconciled to the Father so that the Spirit could fill you so that you can become like him. That's what Paul writes in the book of Romans. He says, God's purpose for you is that you would be conformed to the image of his Son. So what do we need to do to be more like Jesus? There's three things that are demanded of us, I think. We need to realize that we are not the center, we are not served, and we are not takers. We are not the center, we are not the served, we are not the takers. Now, it's very, very hard in our culture to fight against the temptation to be the center of all things. I mean, it's hard for you because I am the center of all things. So you can be out there on the periphery because this is all about me, right? You would be saying the same thing if you were in this position. Right? Because in the world right now, there is a, uh, an obsession, a fixation on not just selfishness, but self-centeredness. Right? The world wants you to be devoted to yourself in every way. Why? Because it makes money for them. All marketing is driven for this reason. Your social media is driven by this very point. All the algorithms that you hear about there, out there are all geared towards the same things giving you more of what you love the most, you. We are obsessively and compulsively self-lovers and self-centered, 
and it is entirely unchristlike. The challenge is we live in a world that is boosting that part of us up, and we, like Christ, need to consider that as worthless, and we need to choose to focus on other people. I think this is why community is so important. I appreciated so much what Pastor talked about last week in part of his sermon about this need for community. In your church elite groups, you're going through the same thing. We have to be in community with each other because it's only in community that we realize that we're not the center of everything. I once read a book by E.M. Bounds. If you haven't read any books by E.M. Bounds, they're phenomenal, all of them, about prayer. But in one of them, he talks about the most, uh, uh, the most challenging things to self that you can do is pray in a group of people. Because only in praying in groups are you forced to pray somebody else's prayer. Now, if you're like me and sometimes thinking, I wish they would just shut up so I could pray my prayer, <laughs> you only laugh because it's true. <laughs> They're praying along and you're saying, if they would just end, please, I can just jump in. I've got so many profound things to pray about. But Ian Bounds says the most selfless thing you can do is pray in groups. Why? Because you're forced to submit yourself to somebody else's thoughts about God, somebody else's requests, somebody else's wishes. Unfortunately, in our society, we become fragmented and broken, and we do all of these things on our own, and we, we listen to songs about ourselves, and we watch social media stuff about ourselves, and we watch videos that meet our needs, and we watch shows that we like, and everything is driven by not just a sense of selfishness, but a sense of self-centeredness. And if we're going to be like Jesus, we need to break that. And we need to be people that are not focused on ourselves, but we are focused on the people around us. We're focused on others. And we need to be deflectors of attention. And like, well, that's not very fun. So much more enjoyable to be the center of everybody's attention. But friends, people, Jesus lived deflecting to others. And we need to be deflectors, not centers. We also need to be servants. What do servants do? Servants, in the truest sense of the word, wait and they look with anticipation at opportunities to help their master, right? They wait with bated breath to say, what can I do to assist? How can I do something? How can I step in and help? There are, there are people in this church that are, that are spiritually gifted with service, meaning right on the top of their mind is the willingness to step forward and do something. You know, there were some of you in the room when Carl said, we need baby holders. I'm in, I'm gonna go right now, I'm gonna get down there, right? Because there are some who are just naturally gifted, spiritually gifted to serve. They look for opportunities when there's an opportunity, they jump in. The problem is, this is not just for the spiritually gifted. We are called to be servants like our, our Savior, Jesus. I imagine if we follow Jesus day to day for those years, all those, those years that are not recorded in Scripture, I bet we would see a man that is constantly looking for opportunities to extend himself, inconvenience himself for the sake of others. I bet you Jesus looked, I bet his eyes were tracing crowds, looking through the crowds, noticing opportunities for him to step out and do something, to say something, to ask a question, to penetrate a heart. I think you and I need to be people that are not obsessed about ourselves, but we are obsessed with the people around us, and we are looking for opportunities to inconvenience ourselves for their sake, for their benefit, for their glory. You can only do this if you're in relationship with other people. So get involved in a group, be involved in some place where you can be outside of yourself and not just think about yourself all the time. For you at home, you need to come back to us.
Unless you're not medically able, we get that. But we're praying for you. We need to be a community that is living with each other, being inconvenienced by each other, because love is messy. Love is not just geared towards those that we like a lot, but we are commanded to love even those that we don't like. And we are commanded to serve those that don't want our help. But the Lord Jesus, even though he deserved it, rejected his position for the sake of a life of service. And we must do the same. Lastly, we're not to be takers. So much of what we do is about us. What do I get out of this? Even about the very thing that should be as selfless as possible, worship oftentimes is bent to, well, I didn't get anything out of the message, or I didn't get anything out of the music, or it was too loud for me, or it was, or it was, or it was, rather than coming with a sense of how can I give out for the glory of God? And that's in something that is at the core of what we do as Christians. We worship. But as you look at your own life, as you look at the way you interact through the workplace, through school, through home, with your spouse, with your children, with your grandchildren, think about how self-centered you are versus other-centered you are. And I encourage you this week just to start making tally marks of the times you use I. I... Since I started thinking about this, I came in, and I, Brian, I'm sorry, worship was awesome, but I think in terms of even the songs we sing in worship, how many of them are about I versus we? That first song was a great song about we, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be personalized in our relationship with Father, but sometimes we, even our worship becomes focused. Somehow we think God is as obsessed with we, us as we are, and we have to break that. That's That's sin. The center of the world is not us. The center of the world is God. Amen. And we need to live that way. The Lord Jesus Christ deserved above all humans to be glorified and honored and worshiped. He deserved to live constantly with people throwing uh, robes under his feet. Every step of his life should have been in a great entourage of glory. But yet he lived his life serving, giving, not taking. And we need to be the church and be like Christ and do the same. Let's pray together. Fathers, we bring this gospel to a close. We're challenged. Hopefully not challenged too much, but challenged. We're challenged, Father, because we see the contradiction between what Jesus is and what we are and God, I pray that you would highlight that in our own souls, our own lives. That we would see those areas of in our, li our lives, even this week as we're going about our days, those areas that we are overly self-focused. God, I know there are some this morning that are here and they're realizing, you know what, I've been, I've been living for the entire wrong reasons and I have to make changes. I have to talk to someone, I have to pray, I have to change. I, I encourage those to come forward. But God, we know that your heart is for us to be like your son and your son served. And I pray that we would too. It's much, much bigger than just being willing to volunteer for something. It's having a heart that looks with empathy towards others, looks with compassion for others, looks intentionally to serve and to help and to assist and to give and to sacrifice. I pray, Father, that we would be these people we're not going to be perfect at it, Father, but I pray that we would do one thing, that we'd step forward in some way, even this week, to give ourselves to those around us, not so that we can receive the praise, 
but so that we can model Christ's likeness so that you would receive the praise. And we look forward to the ways you're going to do that to us and through us and in us and out of us this morning and this week. We pray these things in your son's precious and holy and mighty and humble and glorious and awesome name, the name of Jesus, the son of man. Amen.